Welcome back. Welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And today I have a very, 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 very special guest. All of my guests are special, but this is super, okay, I'm going to say exciting. Why do I always say exciting? Because I'm excited. And it is Dr. John Draper. And everybody knows I don't do introductions. So I am going to let Dr. Draper introduce himself. So tell us who you are. Well, first, I'm so excited that you're so excited. So I'm really excited to be here too, Karis. Uh, I'm Dr. John Draper. I'm the Chief Officer of the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And I work with Vibrant Emotional Health in New York City. Okay. 988. Yeah. In July, we had a big old switch. Mm -hmm. So yeah, why don't you sort of orient us a little bit to exactly what is this this 988 situation it's it's new but it's not new but it's new yeah help us understand it yeah well to to your point um it's a new number but it is not a new service uh the service was something uh that was has been funded by the substance abuse and mental health service administration in one form or another since 2001 um we at vibrant emotional health formerly mental health association of new york city have been operating, administering this, what's now called National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 98 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline since 2004. And what that means is that that one time there was 10 digits as opposed to three, there's still 10 digits for those who wanna give the fingers more exercise. Uh, but but that 1-800-273-8255 has always been a national portal for routing to local crisis centers across the country. Uh, so even though there's one number, that one number, when you phone it, will take you theoretically to the nearest crisis center in the network. Because when you get closer to the person, if you're a crisis counselor, it's easier to connect them to local resources than when you're further away and you're less familiar and have fewer relationships with those providers. So that's always been what SAMHSA had in mind and what we've tried to enable. And if those local calls can't get answered, we make sure that there's backup centers so every call can be answered. And there's always been local centers and a few national backup centers to create this national safety net that allows people to phone from anywhere at any time. And that is anyone who could call. It can be any age, any race, no matter where you are, rural, urban, semi-rural. Uh, you can, the airspace is covered by this number. So that always needed to have, no matter where you are, a place or a means for people to be able to connect to somebody who can help them in a moment of crisis. And before 2001, that was not the case, uh, but ever since 2001, it is the case. Now, what's different is we want to make it easier for people to remember and easier for people to dial when they're in crisis. So three digits instead of 10 digits was kind of the brainchild of Congress and the FCC, and they made it happen, and we're making it happen right now. Wow. I have to think about calling or before calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or uh, referring people to it. I always had to have a little sticky on my computer mm -hmm. because being able to rattle off the 10 digits never really was easy. But now it's easy. 988, 988, 988. I mean, who could forget? And then we're going to like 
we should have a 988 song. There might be one already, um, um, <laughs> right? So we can remember even 988, but it's so- Even a limerick would be good. Yeah, yeah, it's so much easier. <laughs> well, limerick, did, did you ever watch the show, The IT Crowd? Have you ever seen that British no, show? No, I, I have not seen it. Okay, I'm going to send you a link to an episode from The IT Crowd where they have a limerick and a it's like a PSA for, and this is in the UK, for their version of um, a suicide prevention or mental health crisis line. And the number goes on forever and ever. And every time you think they, they're going to stop, it's like 77651. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's so hilarious. And I actually have a shirt that has the number on it. And it like goes over the whole front of the shirt. It's like hilarious. But Back to the seriousness of 988. Oh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of people have questions about 988. I'm hearing public folks, policy folks, consumer leaders, peer advocates, etc. You know, talk about 988. And they each have sort of their very interesting version of, of what's happening. And so I thought it would be really important for us to um, get down to some of the, you know, nitty gritty. I think you did a great job, of course, explaining, you know, what 988 is, that it's a new number for something that already existed to make it easier for folks to call. And you said something too about local calls. The closer a person is who's responding, you know, on the phone to where the person is, the better the response will be because they'll get referred to local services. Right. So that's going to bring up this question of geolocation that everybody has, not everybody, but a lot of people have concern about. If you're calling from your cell phone, I used to live in the Washington DC area, but my phone number remained the same, which was a California area code. So if I'm calling from that California area code, but in DC because I live there or in Nebraska because I'm visiting, how do people know exactly where I am and to help me get the services I need that are next to me? Like, how does that happen? Well, Karis, you have pinpointed the central nature of our concern and why we do not and why we actually need some form of geolocation for routing for our, our calls because it is really critical that we do our best to try and connect people to local centers. But the exact scenario that you noted, most people are contacting us by mobile devices. The vast majority of people, whether it's uh, phone, text, or, or chat, are trying to get to us from a place that's not necessarily where they are, uh, or at least the indicating number associated with them is from a different area code than where they're actually located. So the accuracy for which we're in, we're able to actually connect them to the local center is highly highly suspect and quite variable. That's problematic for us, and we've actually been uh, talking with the FCC and our phone carrier, the platform that works for, works with us in Toronto, to see what are, are some means for us being able to at least get what's called course geolocation. And course geolocation would send us to the nearest cell phone tower. So it wouldn't tell us exactly where a person is. That's really only necessary in the event that somebody is 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 unable or unwilling to, to tell us where they are. And, and if we don't do something, they could die. And so if a person's taking a drug overdose or shot themselves and we can't find them, that's really a problem. And we really do need to have granular geolocation. But, but most of the time, we really just need to have what's called course geolocation. Just take us to the nearest cell phone tower so we can get you to the nearest center. And they can then connect you to those local resources that we think are so essential. So if somebody's calling, so if I'm calling 
And maybe we should talk a little bit about for people who've never called the line, what is that like? I call, somebody answers, they talk with me, and here's all the different things that, that could happen. So so one of the things you know I'm thinking about is, you know, if I'm calling and I'm able to tell you I happen to be in Nebraska today, even though I'm from California, and I really need to connect to something in Nebraska, where did my call go? Because it was a, let's pretend it's a 323 number. It's not, but let's just pretend. So I'm not giving away exactly where I am. Um, let's say it's a 323 number, my phone. I call 988. Where where does it go? Does it go to the, yeah, where does it go? I'm not even going to guess. It, it goes to your area code, your home area code, basically the area code on your phone, but not necessarily where you're located. So it looks for your area code and I think the prefix, and that's how it, it, it does the the routing. And again, could take you far away from, take you back home where you came from, but not where you currently are. Mm-hmm. And often in those cases, and most of the time, people just tell us where they are and that's fine. Then, then, but what we, we have a choice of either trying to then look up local resources as needed. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. either way, Karis, they're going to be talking with a caring counselor who can listen to their problem, help them through it. They may not need a referral. Most of the time we're able to deescalate the crisis over the phone. Um, but they may need a referral. In that case, it it can be challenging. And, yeah. and so that in that case, we might say, well, hey, let me see if I can look up something uh, for you or uh, potentially even warm transfer you to the center that is nearest to them in the network. So then they could look up that center and then warm transfer that that call over. That's a pretty arduous process. Most of, that doesn't happen that often. Sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but centers have the option to do that for sure. So I'll give another scenario. We'll just play some scenarios out if that's okay. Um, sure. What happens if, uh, and I think this is one where I think it gets a little bit more precarious, I think, you know, what happens if I'm calling, I, I could be in my local area, I, I couldn't be, it doesn't really matter in this instance. And I always give this example, I'm calling because I could be thinking I'm having a panic attack and I need somebody to talk with me yep. and, and just kind of, um, and I've, I've actually done this with my, my brother's really great at this, by the way, shout out to my bro, but uh, you know, call and, and, and walk me through. But if my brother's not available, I got to have another number. So let's say I call this number because I'm really worried and I'm really concerned about what's going on and that it could escalate to something more concerning. And it turns out in the midst of this call that I'm not having a panic attack, I'm having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I start to sound more breathy, or I'm talking about pain um, on my left side, or any of those indicators. So now the call maybe needs to go to 911. How does it get to 911? Is that a direct transfer? Well, no, we're not able to do that. There's actually maybe a handful of centers that have, have an agreement with local 911 centers where they can do that. But those are very much the exceptions to the rule. And again, there's over 200 local centers in the network. Uh, I would say it's certainly less than 10, maybe even less than five. That being said, what we have to do is phone 911. And typically, if we have to give them the number, we find out typically what's the right 911 center. I mean, most of the time a person will tell us where they are, right? I mean, that's, that's first and foremost. I mean, where are you? Uh, yeah. And they'll tell us. Yeah. And then, you know, we can we can look up what is the 911 center that is nearest to them. So we have a directory of all the 911 centers. 
So then we phone up that 911 center and say this person is at this, this address. So the overwhelming majority of the time that we that a person needs 911, they're able to tell us where they are and they want us to help. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how that works. Yeah. Um, we don't have a direct transfer, but we do have a directory of 911 centers and hopefully can contact the right one. Yeah, yeah. I always worry about Karis Myrick, who's directionally challenged, and I'm in a different city, and I can't tell you where I am. And you, uh, there may need to be more of a granular locator of where I am, because now I can't tell you where I am. I'm disoriented. I'm actually having a heart attack, and I need EMS to come. And I think that's another thing. You know, we hear 911, and we, and again, I think is, um, you know, people, you know, who have um, behavioral health conditions, a lot of times first responders many of us older folks are used to is police response, which we don't want. So we hear 911, we think police, but um, it could be a number of responses depending upon what it is. Because 911 is emergency right. Right. Um, services, not just police. But But to that yeah. scenario, yeah. That's, a, that's a good example of, so let's say you don't know where you are, and that is not infrequent. I mean, people, again, if they're having a heart attack and they're in a strange area, they don't really know what the street address is or anything like that. But but they do know what town they're in, and that, that's really helpful, typically, mm. unless they're completely disoriented. So mm-hmm. uh, they, they'll tell us what town they're in, and then, again, we can look up, you know, or even hopefully area of town or something. That, but, but as long as we can get some information from them, they give some general location that can get us closer to them with 911 and then give the number to 911. 911 uh, can typically ping them. The, the real problem is when um, they don't know where they are, they don't tell us where they are, we think they're going to die, and we give 911 a number, and 911 says, What do you want me to do with this? Sometimes they can ping it, sometimes they can find the person, often they, they cannot. And so everybody is saying, Wow, this person, I hope they're okay because. Uh, we don't know how to reach them. Yeah, that's a lot on the um, call agent shoulders, I would think. So when um, you know we think about how to have these conversations in our communities, how should we be having them to help people understand and or have input to you know their thoughts around not geolocation, yes or no, but geolocation, how much you know, and, and maybe there's some training on our part. Like I think about you know peer training as you know, we're supporting people we serve, um, encouraging them to think about when and how they want to let the call responders, I call them call agents, I don't, you can tell me the right term, let them know, hey, let them know where you are. And these are the reasons why right. um, that you might want to let them know where you are. So you can get those local resources so that you can get connected to where you need to be. And if an emergency pops up, and you need an EMS um, response, you can get that response quicker and easier. Well, I think I think the first thing to note, though, Karis, is that, and I think a lot of this conversation is is shaped by the really shadowy uh, history of the other three-digit number and its response to people in, in mental health crises. We have traditionally treated psychological emergencies uh, like we have, you know, public safety emergencies uh, and medical emergencies. So we send out sirens, we send out, you know, cops, we send out EMS. And uh, for many people who are in crisis, the last thing they need to see are people in uniforms coming to their, their home. And and that, that really shadowy history of using that three-digit number for for what's really a public health emergency for public safety emergencies. Uh, and now we find and the idea is essentially to shift 
with this three-digit number, a, a, a public safety response to psychological emergencies, to a public health response. So we are, this is a huge transformation, but I think in people's minds, they're still thinking about, um, you know, what about the cops? And yes, that can occasionally happen, but here's what really happens most of the time when you call 988 and why it's better than 911 when people are in psychological emergencies. About 80 to 90% of the time, our folks are able to de-escalate the crises over the phone. That doesn't mean that the problem is fixed. It means that they're emotionally at a better place by the end of the call and, and, and the contact than they were before before it. So sometimes they need referrals, sometimes they don't. So so that's that's the first thing is that and now when you phone 911, their job is not to de-escalate the crisis over the phone. Their, their job is to dispatch. So when people are thinking 988, they're thinking like 911. What are they going to dispatch? That is not what happens most of the time. It's very, very rare. So what happens is that we are really, really good at de-escalating prices. Those, those statistics are there to really kind of remind us that we've been trained to work with people. who We hear talk, thoughts about suicide all the time. I know they scare the hell out of most people when they hear them. We're prepared for them. We're, we're, it's common for us to hear people talk about suicide. And, and, and I know it's incredibly stigmatizing in the community. It's not on our phone. It is, it's, it's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. We hear, about, hear it all the time. So when people in suicidal crisis, we have a sense as to how to engage them, how to help them feel heard, understood, safe, connected to us. And then once they start to feel that way, they feel more calm. And they can collaborate with us because we know, Harris, that the best way to keep a person safe is for them to keep themselves safe. And that is done through collaboration. So so the collaboration, it's just a matter of, okay, I just want to gain, gain your trust. Can I trust you? Do you understand me? Once they feel understood, they feel trusted. They feel like they can be can trust you. And then they can engage you and start to become empowered to help themselves. So that's the way most of our calls go. And then occasionally, 2%, well, sometimes really less than 2% of our contacts do involve emergency circumstances. Um, but most of the time, they don't. And with a 2%, over half the time, people are saying, please call 911 for me. I'll work with you. And then there are those other occasions, those less less frequent occasions where people are unable and unwilling to tell us where they are. And we believe if they don't, we don't act, they're going to die. They call the suicide prevention service. And in m many of these cases, they are attempting suicide. And so we are left with that choice. Do we do nothing because we're afraid of a police response or do we do something because whatever is whatever can respond can potentially save their lives no matter how unpleasant even though it's a scaring response in those circumstances maybe later they'll get a caring response yeah and what we want now are caring responses instead of scaring responses so i would say to all of those people who would like to talk about geolocation those are important voices that we need in the community to talk about the need for alternative responses mobile crisis teams in some cases where you have to call the police please have co-responders you mentioned peers we have to have people who've been there who can talk with people who are afraid to go anywhere you know peers 
in some cases, psychiatric medication for people who are who are psychotic and, and cannot leave and, and are too disoriented, who would have to go to a hospital otherwise. We'd like to keep them in the community so they don't have to go to the hospital. So we want our job is to keep people in the community to keep them safe as much as possible. And the fewer dispatches we have to do, certainly if law enforcement dispatches, the better. Wow. You use so many terms that like are key that I'm going to um, repeat back. I love the building trust that we know the biggest way to engage and activate people starts with trust that leads to collaboration um, and then a person feeling empowered. Because ultimately, you know, and when peers and, and people with lived experience talk about, you know, their own locus of control, really, we're talking about being empowered and wanting to be empowered, especially in a situation sometimes where we feel we're losing power or somebody's taking our power away. So I'm so uh, happy to hear sort of these kind of terms and repeat them back because they're so important to us. And that also we're moving from a scary response to a caring response. That's super powerful. And, you know, we have, we have an obligation, yes, to have our voices heard about the things that have been scary in order to build things that are far more caring, that we're willing to participate in, seek out uh, for our own recovery along that recovery journey. So that was really cool to hear about. Let me ask another question. I'm shooting a lot of questions at you. I feel kind of bad. No, I don't. I don't feel no, bad at all. I'm an unapologetically black unicorn, so that's please. what I do. <laughs> so um, what are your hopes for 988? I, I heard a little bit, but are there other hopes that you have for 988 as we build it out? I have so many hopes for 988. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's talk about this as a transformational moment. I mean, right now we're we have just we've kind of built the front door. And the largest front door in the history of, of uh, behavioral health crisis services in the United States. But what's behind that front door is not fully realized. Is some of it is on paper, some of it is is fairly random in terms of guesswork as to what's the best way to approach this. We know we need mobile crisis teams. We know we need other receiving facilities other than emergency departments and and hospitals. But think of it this way. When, when 911 was established, a cascade of law enforcement resources that we had no idea we needed, emergency medical service response that we had no idea we needed, firefighter response that we had no idea we needed, receiving facilities anywhere from ho- uh, emergency departments to hospitals to, to, to jails and prisons. 911 fed the development of all of those services. And in fact, you can even look at security personnel uh, in malls or whatever. We realized, well, you know, 911 can't get to these people fast enough. We got to have, we got to, we, we need to. So essentially it created an entire industry uh, for, for law enforcement, for emergency medical response and careers in all of those. Our mental health care system is embryonic at this stage compared to what I imagine it could be in 50 years from now. And we'll look back at 988, even 20 years from now, and say it has completely transformed our, our mental health system. And we can't even imagine some of the, the, the innovations and needs that are, and it starts with opening a door, which is essentially a big ear to what is it that people need and want? And we're gonna hear from more people, from more demographic groups, from more communities all around the United States than we've ever heard before about their mental health needs. And then we are going to turn to our system and say, 
what now? Have you got this for this person? And they don't. And, and what we have may not work or there may not be enough of it. So all of that will be fuel for developing a system, for informing a system that has essentially had no ears at all to the ground. They've all been listening to each other. Providers have built a system for providers, not for consumers. This will enable us to build a system for consumers. Okay. I am blown away with that vision. I love it. I think it's helping me think about how I can be involved. I know I'm involved a lot already, <laughs> but um, and how to help other people realize that this is um, not the end. This is just the beginning. And I think people, a lot of times I'm hearing it as if, well, this is it. No, this isn't it. There's a lot more work to be done. And you've just given us a great example of that. There is one thing I do want to talk to you about. I, I don't remember when I first met you. It was either at an AFSP conference or NAMI or SAMHSA. I don't even know. Um, all I knew was somebody said, oh, you have to meet Dr. Draper and you have to understand kind of all the work he's doing. And yeah, he's the dude with the ponytail. I was like, wait, there's a dude <laughs> with a ponytail working in mental health? All right, this is cool. This is like cool, right? I could get a, I could get on board with this. So tell me, not about your ponytail, but tell me um, how you got into this work in particular. It's actually a really great story. Thank you for asking. You know, I've worked in um, as a mental health aide in hospitals and I hated it. And I, I worked in an outpatient clinic and thought that's the way it's supposed to be. I did my internship and you know, become a psychologist at a hospital in Manhattan. And, and then I looked for a job. And the job that seemed to pay the best was this mobile crisis team job in Brooklyn, uh, working for Interfaith Medical Center in 1989. And this was, a, I said, really, a service that makes house calls? Does that happen? And I thought, this is interesting. It's a little scary. Let's see how this goes. And they paid well. So I said, okay, let's give it a shot. It was a revelatory moment when I first went into someone's home. And again, Brooklyn, as you know, is the most, you know, it's, it's multiculturally diverse in a way that a boy from white suburban Texas uh, really needed to see and learn and feel. And that's one of the reasons I came to New York City is I, 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 I gotta get out of the suburb. I gotta, I gotta get with the world. And boy, was I in a world. And I was in people's worlds. And I learned very quickly that as I was saying, we have built a system for providers, not for consumers. When I went to these people's homes, now people who don't know what is it, what is the kind of person a, a, a mobile crisis team would see. The kind of person is a person that has severe psychiatric symptoms, having you know under great psychological distress in ways that are that are so impairing their functioning that they're unable or unwilling to go get care on their own. So care must go to them. So people who couldn't get out of bed because they were too depressed, people who were psychotic and they could not organize themselves to go to a clinic, how could we expect them to show up at 9 a.m. on Tuesday to see a provider when they were in this kind of state? And they and their family members were in such distress. And so when we would come in, um, just in these un unmarked vans, the sense of desperation and distress. And again, we would go into every kind of home, every kind of home, people with a lot of money, people with no money, people in housing projects, people in penthouses, people in, in uh, Jewish Orthodox community to uh, a Muslim community, I mean, everything. And essentially the distress, the problems, while they looked a little bit different, were mostly the same. And the ways in which we were able to work with them and their families in a place where they felt safe, that they were in control, 
they weren't in my office. I was in their office. And because they felt in control, they felt safe. And I was also in their world. So all of the things that I was learning about them from the people in their lives to the ways in which they, they were decorating their home or not, that kind of information, you know, who's that person on the wall? Tell me who they are in your life. I, I learned more about a person in an hour's visit on a mobile crisis team than I would in an office after six months of seeing them. Mm-hmm. And I was a therapist too, so I knew that. And I said, this is the way it needs to be. And then when that line turned on, I, I was I worked on that mobile crisis team for seven years. And I said, I, I want to do this forever until somebody said, well, if you start this hotline in New York City, we'll be able to dispatch those mobile crisis teams to people all over the city. I said, so that's how we can get this out there. So that's why that's how I got started in hotlines is I wanted to dispatch mobile crisis teams because I wanted to bring mental health into people's lives where they belong. I always give the example of Marcus Welby for people who are old enough to know who Marcus Welby is as kind of what we're missing in our healthcare and mental health care today. And Marcus Welby was this kind of older grandfatherly doctor of which you were not the olderly grandfatherly doctor. You're probably the guy who played his uh, sidekick younger doctor. But anyway, uh, they would come to people's homes and it would be this relationship of almost like the real term family doctor, you know, they were part of the family, they were part of the community. That's really beautiful. And I, I uh, can see this vision now of thinking about mobile crisis team or, or mobile care teams in a completely different way and the power of that. So thanks for sharing your Genesis story of how you got into this. Um, and, and Karis, yeah. think, think, think about one of the things I also dream about too is, okay, not just mobile crisis work, what else can we do for people in their lives rather than coming into the office. And and would that be better? Would it be better for them? Would it be better for their care? I mean, there's so many young people who bringing them into a clinic and then putting them back into the home where they're having all of the problems with all of their family members and their family members are making it worse. Family therapy belongs in the home where it's happening. And and a lot of, of, of young kids who are out of control, so to speak, they're in an out of control environment. Let's go to their environment go into their ecosystem and help them there. There's so much that we are not doing because we're so office focused and provider focused. Yeah. Yeah. Making people come to us versus us being in community with people. So as we start to wrap up, you've given us lots of wisdom. I don't know. Is there any last piece of wisdom dropping, I call it, that you would like to leave our listeners with? I don't know if this is wisdom, but but it's really about... um, more excitement uh, about the future. And, you know, I, I've said this many times and I, I, I just, I can't stop saying it because um, it, it really encapsulates my, my feeling. Because I, I, you know, when I first heard about this three digit number as an idea, I did talk with my daughter about it, um, who like, you know, so many late adolescents, she was 18 at the time, you know, has had her own mental health struggles and she is also of course, at 18, brilliant, because you know everything at that age. And so I knew, um, since she knew more than I did at 18, I asked her, what, what, what do you think about this three-digit number? And she said, I think it's going to do more than anything else we could do to eliminate the stigma against mental illness in this country. And I said, well, why do you think that? And she said, well, we have a three-digit number for medical emergencies. And if, if we had a three-digit number for psychological emergencies, everyone would know that they're real and that they require a very different response 
than sending cops to your door. And I, I do think about that as, you know, our grandkids and grandkids, grandkids, looking back on like, really, there was a day when you used to send cops to people's home when they were thinking about suicide? Really? That's what they did back then? I want there to be an incredulous, unbelievable response. Like that couldn't have happened because it is a primitive and ridiculous response, uh, but it is, it, it, it has lasted too long. And this is, a, a, I mean, basically hope has a new number now. And it's this three digit number that is going to be a lot easier for people to remember and dial when they are in their darkest moments on their worst days. Wow. Okay, well, let's make that dream happen um, collectively, because I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving of your time. I know you're super busy, and I just appreciate um, having this conversation with you today. So thank you very much. Oh, it's always such a pleasure, Karis, and I'm looking forward to seeing you around. All right. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining in. Remember to listen, comment, share, subscribe, all those things you're supposed to do, uh, because it's important uh, for all of us to hear these wonderful stories and information. And join us next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.